this morning to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Colossians in the New Testament. This is the first weekend of the new year. It's January 2018 is done. 2019 is now up and running. And as we begin this new year, I'm really excited to begin a new sermon series in our time together on Sundays. We're going to be studying through the book of Colossians together. You may ask, why Colossians? You know, there's 66 books in the Bible. And so far, in the last four years of this church's existence, we've only covered two of them. We've covered Mark, and we've covered Genesis. Why Colossians? Well, all the books in the Bible are good and valuable. They're all inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for instruction, correction, and righteousness. But I am eager to preach through this book, the book of Colossians, at this point in our church, because I believe that the message of Colossians is so incredibly timely and relevant for the church today. This letter from Paul to the church at Colossae highlights the eternal relevance of the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. That is really what Colossians is all about. Again and again, Paul will show us how Jesus is supreme. He is glorious. He is magnificent. Jesus is over all. But it's not just that Jesus is supreme. Paul will also show us that Jesus is sufficient, meaning that Jesus is enough. We have all that we need in Him. We are made complete in Him. He is what we need and all we need. All we need for salvation, all that we need for growth, all that we need for spiritual life is Christ. It's Christ. We, like the believers at Colossae, we really face a threat, a threat to our faith. Therefore, a threat to our spiritual life. We face the ever-present danger of competing ideologies that threaten to minimize the person of Christ. There are ideas and teachings and, and thoughts out there that would seek to minimize the work of Christ. Christ is minimized when he is redefined as somehow being lesser than he truly is. Christ is minimized when People teach that there's something we need in addition to Christ. Something that we somehow are lacking if we're going to grow into maturity. So, knowing the eternal, the eternal truth of who Jesus Christ really is, and understanding the fullness of what it is that He has accomplished for us, this is nothing less than essential. I hope that you will take some time over the upcoming weeks to read the book of Colossians. Read it in its entirety. It's only four chapters. It'll just take you a few minutes, and then drill down with us each week and read the passages we're going to be studying through, so that we can stand firm in the truth, so that we can experience the power and grace of the all-sufficient and supreme Savior. I don't know about you, but I can think of no better way to begin this year than by focusing on Christ. So I want to jump in, before we get into the text itself a little bit, to the background, the purpose, and the theme of Colossians, because if we're going to understand the specific parts of this letter over upcoming weeks, we really need to get a sense of the whole, understanding what this letter meant, what Paul meant by it, when he wrote it to those first readers, that will help us to rightly apply these ancient truths to our modern day. So who is the author of this letter? Well, according to verse 1, it's the Apostle Paul. We see this also in chapter 4, verse 18. He names himself as the one who's signing off on these words in Colossians. Paul, if you've read the book of Acts, you'll know, was once a Jewish Pharisee. He was a religious expert. 
a scholar and a leader, a man of great importance who, in his earlier years, had actually spearheaded the persecution of the church. He had opposed Christ and opposed those who followed Christ and sought to teach the truth about Christ. He had actually participated in the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr. But on his way to arrest and imprison more Christians in a town called Damascus, this man, Paul, had been confronted by none other than Christ. The risen Christ in his full glory. And Paul was dramatically converted as he experienced that vision on the road to Damascus. You can read it. This experience would mark the start of a new mission for Paul. And Paul's new mission would mean that he was no longer seeking to destroy the church. But instead, he would now dedicate his life to building Christ's church. Paul would become a powerful evangelist who had a mission to the non-Jewish peoples of the world. And then during his career, if you go on to read Acts, he would participate in three different missionary journeys where he traveled, where he preached, and he planted churches all throughout what is in our modern day known as Turkey. Several of these letters to those churches helped to make up our New Testament scriptures. You think about books like Romans, the letters to the Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, the letters to the Thessalonians, and this letter to the Colossians. These are Paul's writings to these churches that he had such an important role in establishing and strengthening and supporting. This specific letter that Paul wrote was actually written in prison. If you look in chapter 4, verse 18, he asks these people to remember his chains, meaning that he's not a free man at this point. And he's limited. He would have gone and visited these people himself. He longed to see their face, but he's prohibited from doing that. So instead, he writes them this letter, the letter that we know as Colossians. It's called Colossians because it's written to Colossians. These people who live in the city of Colossae, who made up the church there. A little bit about this town. The city was made up mostly of Gentiles. We know this because in chapter 2, verse 13, he describes them as being uncircumcised. It was a physical description denoting that they were outside the nation of Israel. But this town also had a Jewish settlement. There were some who lived there that were from the nation of Israel. And this made for a pretty interesting religious and cultural mix. Talk about a diverse group of people. And we see evidence uh, in, in Paul's writings to them of Greco-Roman philosophy. They've been influenced as those ideas have spread with the Greek Empire and later the Roman Empire. We see evidence of Jewish religious rituals, things like feasts and the Sabbath and circumcision. But we also see hints of pagan influence, mysticism. It was a big melting pot, and there were all these different ideas that were coming together there in this town. Along with their neighboring cities of Laodicea and Hierapolis, Colossians was one of three little towns that was about 100 miles east of a larger, more significant town called Ephesus, that's, you might know the book of Ephesians, was written to the church there. Ephesus was a much larger city there in Asia Minor. And Paul actually spent two years at Ephesus. He had a prolonged ministry there to the Ephesians, a very fruitful ministry. Acts 19.10 says that his ministry at Ephesus continued for two years so that, quote, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Paul and his fellow laborers made a lot of noise there in Ephesus. It spread throughout the region. And the church at Colossae, apparently, was fruit from Paul's ministry there at Ephesus. But the church at Colossae 
was not planted by Paul in person. He had actually never been to this town. In chapter 2, verse 1, you see that he says he has a great struggle for them, and for those at Laodicea, and for all, he says, who have not seen me face to face. So his influence has resulted in the spread of the gospel, but he hasn't been there in person yet. Instead, it appears that a man named Epaphras had brought the gospel to them and established the church there. If you look in chapter 1, uh, verse 7, speaking about the gospel, the grace of God and truth, Paul says that they learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Epaphras, according to chapter 4, verse 12, was one of them. He was from Colossae, and he had labored faithfully as their pastor. It's likely that Epaphras had traveled to Ephesus. He had heard the gospel from Paul. He'd been converted, disciple. He had joined in Paul's efforts at spreading the gospel and taken that gospel back to his hometown. What this means is that the church at Colossae, the people there, were sort of like Paul's spiritual grandchildren. He wasn't directly their father in faith. But he had a deep personal connection to them. They were grateful for him and his ministry, having benefited from it. Throughout this letter, it's clear Paul has great affection for these people. He strongly desires to visit them and see them face to face. He labors in prayer for them. He's invested spiritually, emotionally, in what's going on in this city. It's one of the reasons he writes to them. But specifically, why is Paul writing to these believers? Well, it can be hard for us to answer this question. Uh, when you read a letter like this, it's kind of like if you've ever heard somebody talking on the phone, and you're only hearing half of the conversation. You can kind of guess what's going on on the other side, but you have to sort of read between the lines to figure out who they're talking to and what it is that they're talking about. So as we read between the lines here in Colossians, we can start to put the pieces together. It becomes apparent that Epaphras had visited Paul, he was with Paul at this point, and he shared with Paul a concern. Epaphras was concerned about some growing ideas that were threatening the health and the faith of the church. These people had a problem. It seems like the cultural mashup of secular philosophy and religious ritualism and this pagan mysticism was sort of merging together and attempting to even merge together with the ideas of Christianity. And by doing so, it was threatening to distort and diminish the truth of Christ. The, re the reason we can safely assume this is the case is because Paul will address each of these issues in the book. If you look at chapter 2 with me very briefly, we see in verse 8, Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and get this, not according to Christ. With that verse 16, he says, Therefore let no one cast judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, a new moon, or Sabbath. There's those Jewish uh, ritual ideas. He says, These things are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. We see evidence of secular philosophy, evidence of religious ritualism, but there's even this mystical idea. In verse 18, he says, no, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by the sensuous mind, and not holding fast 
to the head. The head is Christ. Although these people had heard and embraced the good news of the gospel, the message of Christ and who he is and what he's done for us on the cross, Paul has to warn them. He has to warn them against error, against false teaching that threatens to deceive them and to enslave them by leading them away from Christ. And notice this is subtle. The danger is not that these people were outright rejecting Christ, but they were minimizing his person, minimizing his work, and they did this often by adding in additional elements, additional truths that would dilute the gospel. Now this is a phenomenon that's not uncommon throughout the world, not in Paul's day, and not in our day. Some of you know Pastor Brian Warren, a friend of ours who served as a missionary uh, to the Mayo people in Sinaloa, Mexico. Brian can tell you uh, about how the people there have absorbed uh, Christian terms and, and even some Christian ideas through exposure to Roman Catholicism. And they sort of merged that with some of their traditional spiritist religion. And it forms this weird sort of hybrid that's unique to their culture. You have these pagan witch doctors who dance throughout the streets on certain festivals, but they're called Pharisees. And then some of the Catholic saints have just been added in to the large list of pagan gods that they already have. So you have this weird mashup where everything gets sort of merged together. Um, and really that happens in our society as well. I mean, think about it. Think about the different flavors and brands and strands of even what is called Christianity in our world today. Secular humanist philosophies. The wisdom of the world. It's absorbed, merged in with the ideas of Christianity. New Age ideas about experience, these mystical truths about finding the deity within yourself. It's somehow merged and, and, and mixed up with the ideas from Scripture. Or perhaps legalistic self-help mantras, so popular in our world today. All of these things get painted with a skin coat of Christian language and baptized into the church. We're in danger of doing the same kinds of things. And doing this minimizes Christ. And it dilutes the gospel. We're susceptible to this because the world's philosophies too often impress or maybe intimidate believers in the church. We're easily seduced by attractive arguments. And we sometimes desire the status and the respect that is given to those who seem to have a higher knowledge. People who are in the inner circle who know more wisdom and information than everybody else. There's also an appeal, I think all of us are prone to, uh, to be drawn to ritualism. I mean, think about even that American philosophy that's ingrained in so many of us of fixing your own problems, taking care of your own business, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. That's an American value, right? We tend to uphold and value that sort of approach to life. But that's dangerous when that merges with the ideas of Christianity. We become prone to think that we have the power to do what is required to reach God, or that we have the ability to somehow make ourselves acceptable to Him. But this is a severe overestimation of our abilities and a severe underestimation of what salvation actually requires. As many in the church are even susceptible to New Age mysticism, it has an appeal because. We crave experience. And we're so often seeking to, to feel something or to see something that will propel us to some new level of spirituality that will take us beyond where we've always been before. 
And so those who promise something that we've never experienced, they often gain a lot of influence in church. And they usually get a book contract to write about how they went to heaven and came back again. This is part of the reason I'm so excited about the book of Colossians. Because the way that Paul deals with the errors they face, this is interesting. He doesn't do it by picking apart every error or, or by exposing all their arguments point by point. There is a time and place for that. And Paul does that at other times and other places. If you read Galatians, he interacts point by point with false teaching. But what Paul does in Colossians is hold up the truth itself. He holds up the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ, this glorious truth that is so bright and so dazzling that it throws into stark relief the error and the insufficiency and the emptiness of all these other competing ideas. And this is what makes Colossians so perpetually relevant to the church. Although the false teaching that we face today may have points of contact with the problems that those believers dealt with in Paul's day, our problems aren't exactly the same. I mean, everything is always evolving and changing, even though there's nothing new under the sun. It gets repackaged. It gets reprocessed. But here's the thing. The solution to their problems in that day is exactly the same as the solution to ours. It's Christ. Christ alone. Paul's theme through this book, in, the, in this letter to these believers, the solution to the Colossians' problem in ours is the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. Christ always, Christ alone, nothing but Christ. Keeping people tell us in chapter 2, verse 15, that Christ is supreme as God. And tell us in verse 16 of chapter 2, He is supreme as the creator and the sustainer of all things. And tell us in verse 20, that He is sufficient as Savior. And tell us in verse 18, He is supreme in the church as the head of the body. And He will tell us that Christ must be preeminent. In chapter 3, verse 11, that Christ is all and in all. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these things to instruct a church that is always susceptible to looking for more. Those who might think that maybe there's something deeper than the gospel. To a church that was tempted to wonder if the grass was greener, on the other side. Maybe there's something that we're missing out on. Because all we have is Christ. When the church is told that there's something available outside of Christ. Or that there's something that we need in addition to Christ. What we need to hear from Paul. What we need to hear repeated today in this place. Is that we must uphold the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. And when we do that it protects us from the errors that we face. The false teaching that threatens to rob us of all that God has provided for us in Jesus Christ. God in His wisdom has preserved this letter so that we too can see Christ. So with that in mind, I hope you're excited to jump into the book of Colossians. We're going to look this morning in the time remaining just at His greeting to these people, the intro to the letter, verses 1 and 2. And in doing so, I want to bring out three observations about Paul's theme. Three truths about the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. The first is this. The supremacy and sufficiency of Christ is asserted with apostolic authority. The supremacy and sufficiency of Christ is asserted with apostolic authority. Verse 1, Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. 
this greeting from Paul and his trusted ministry partner, a young man named Timothy, this greeting mentions Paul, Paul's key credential. His key credential. It's not that his key credential is not necessarily what he knows as a Jewish Pharisee, a, a scriptural expert, although he is that. His key credential is not his seniority as one who's been a believer longer than them. His key credential is not even the fact that this church owed its existence to his success as a preacher. No, his key credential that he holds up is his status as an apostle. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. An apostle means very simply one who is sent. But it means more than that. It carries with it an official capacity. Paul says, this is an office that I fulfill. This is my job description. This is what I do. I am an apostle of Christ Jesus. Paul had been sent by Jesus himself to speak for and to represent Jesus Christ. And what this means is that his words to these people carries divine authority. Now, these people knew that Paul was an apostle. So why is he saying this all over again? He's not informing them, giving them new information about something they didn't know. Rather, Paul is reminding them of his authority as an apostle for a reason. Because Paul's about to tell them what they must believe. And he's about to tell them how they must live. And if somebody comes into your living room and says, here's what you need to think and here's how you need to act, that person better have some authority to make those kinds of claims. And Paul says, listen, what I'm about to tell you comes not from my opinion or, or, or from my research. It comes from God. He speaks with divine authority. This isn't just Paul's view of Jesus that he's going to share with them. These aren't his ideas. Paul speaks about Christ, on behalf of Christ, with authority from Christ. The supremacy and sufficiency of Christ is going to be declared to them with divine authority. Not only does his apostleship carry with it divine authority, but Paul reminds them that it's rooted in the will of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Remember Paul's story of conversion? That incredible experience he had on the road to Damascus? The reason Paul is an apostle isn't because he somehow appointed himself to be an apostle. No. The will of God ordained him as an apostle. It's because of Christ, because of God's will, that he speaks with this authority. It's because of God's will that he became an apostle. And I think Paul's also indicating that every facet of his ministry is guided by the will of God. The words that he will write to them carry authority, but this authority comes from God and is submitted to the will of God. He is speaking to them what Christ wants him to speak. It's not that these words have power. It's that this expresses God's desire for them. This is what God wants for you. God wants you to believe these things. God wants you to live this way, the things that he's about to unpack for you. So this message about the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ is asserted with apostolic authority. But secondly, we see that the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ is a message that Christians need. It's a message that Christians need. Notice how Paul addresses the people he writes to in verse 2. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. To the saints and faithful brothers. He says, he's writing this message about who Christ is, how supreme he is, the sufficiency of Christ. And he's not sharing it with people who don't already believe. 
He's not sharing this with, with those who are lost, with those who've never heard, although they need to hear this message as well. Paul says, you guys are believers, and I have something to share with you about the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. He calls them, first of all, saints. Saints. Now, what does that mean? Well, Paul's not saying that these are dead people who are famous because they were really holy and faithful believers, the way that perhaps when the Catholic Church uses the word saints. These are not the Eagle Scouts of holiness. That's not who he's writing to, okay? These are living followers of Christ. That's all that it means. What this means is that if you're a believer in Jesus this morning, if you've repented of your sin and trusted in the finished work of Jesus Christ, you are a saint. The word saint simply means not that you are perfect, but rather that you have been set apart. Set apart by God and set apart for God. Made holy not by your perfect life, but made holy instead by the blood of Jesus Christ. The sainthood is really the status that all believers share. And this is a great privilege. A great, per- a great privilege that's not a mark of personal accomplishment. This is a great privilege that is a mark instead of grace that has been received. Consider the saving work of Christ. Look down in verse 12 and 13, which we'll get to uh, here in a week or two. Verse 12 and 13, he urges them to give thanks to the Father who has qualified you. These people didn't attain to sainthood by their performance. No, it says the Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of of sins. Saints are not those who have never sinned. Saints are those who have been forgiven by sin. Saints are not those who achieved some status. Saints are those who have been qualified by God. It's a mark of incredible grace that has been received. This status of sainthood does, however, carry with it life-changing implications. When we get to chapter 3, we'll see that Paul will urge them in verse 1, if you've been raised with Christ, if this is who you are, if you're a saint, then seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. You will tell them later in chapter 3, there are certain things they must put off. If they're going to live in a way that's consistent with their status. There are certain things they must put on. If they're going to live in a manner consistent with the gospel that they receive. So these people are saints, but Paul is going to call them to live as saints. And such people need to hear Christ's supremacy in Christ's sufficiency. He doesn't just call them saints. He also calls them faithful brothers. And in the Greek language, this refers, when you have a mixed group, they usually use the male construct. So it's brothers and sisters. It's everybody. These are all people who have a family status because of their faith in Jesus. And this is a word of both affirmation and a word of affection to them. Remember, Paul's never been to Colossae. But he's heard about their faithfulness, and he commends them. If you look at verse 3, he says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love that you have for all the saints. He loves these people, and he affirms them and encourages them because of their faith in Christ. A compliment like that has to mean a lot coming from an apostle especially one that they've never met face to face. He's never met them, but because they share his faith in Christ, Paul says, you guys are family. We are family. You are my brothers and sisters because you are in Christ. 
They're not brothers and sisters because they all share his biological heritage. A lot of these people aren't Jewish the way he is. He says they are brothers in Christ. That's the key. Because they share his faith in Christ, they're family. He's an apostle, but in Christ he finds himself on the same footing as all of these believers, along with every person who's trusted in Jesus. He'll remind them in chapter 3, verse 11, that here, speaking of those who are in Christ, those who are in the church, there's no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. Because they're in Christ, they share this radical unity. So Paul calling them holy brothers here, these saints who are faithful, is important. And it's important not, because, not only because it's a description of what they are, but it's also important because it's a description of what they must be. We looked at this earlier. But this status has implications for their future. If they are to reach their God-intended goal of maturity and holiness as saints, they must cling to and uphold the absolute supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. If they ever get away from that, they'll never reach the end of the journey. They'll never reach it. Paul will point out to them that God's purpose for them is growth. Growth in holiness and maturity. Look in chapter 1, verse 22. He says that you, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Jesus intends at the end of their lives to present them to his Father holy, blameless, mature, complete. And if they're going to reach that intended destiny, they've got to cling to the central truth of who Christ is and all that Christ has accomplished. An insufficient view of Christ cannot produce that kind of holiness. An insufficient view of Christ cannot produce that kind of perseverance either. If they're going to run the race all the way to the finish line, if they're going to face all the obstacles and survive all the attacks that will come and not fall away, then they need these truths that he's about to share with them. In verse 21, he talks about those who have been reconciled to Christ. In verse 23, he says, If, indeed, you continue in the faith. If you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, get this, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. If you shift away from that, if you don't continue in that, the scripture makes it clear you never really received Christ in the first place. You were never united with him. You were never transformed by him. There must be no shifting from the hope of the gospel, the good news of Christ. Paul wants them to never move on from Jesus. To never get over the truth of who he is and what he's done. He says, don't ever exchange this precious treasure for something lesser that cannot save you. The message of Christ's supremacy and sufficiency is a message that Christians need to hear. If they will be holy, if they will be faithful, they will endure. That means we need to hear this. We need to hear this. But thirdly, the supremacy or sufficiency of Christ is also the key to grace and peace. It's the key to grace and peace. Grace and peace is what Paul wishes for these people, what he prays for them. Verse 2, he writes, To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ the Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. This is a prayer of blessing to them. Grace and peace. Now these two words, grace and peace, 
are words that get used a lot in Christian conversation. And, some, and those words may be new for some of you, or maybe you've just heard them so many times, and you've never stopped to consider all that they mean. But what do they mean? Well, I think Paul is being far from flippant here. This isn't just a polite greeting. You know, the way when someone sneezes, you say, God bless you, without really thinking about it. But maybe you're not specifically wishing blessing from heaven upon the person who just sneezed. You know, talking about how we sometimes just have these things we say. That's not what Paul's doing here. He wants grace for them and peace for them. Paul understands the theological freight that these terms carry. Grace means very simply God's favor and God's goodwill towards those who are needy and undeserving. And Paul wants that for these people. He wants God's best for them. He wants God's love and provision and favor for them. Even though they're undeserving, he knows that's what they need. And he knows that God is a God of grace who delights to extend his grace to those who are absolutely needy of it. Grace is a gift of God. And it's the true source of salvation and joy. It's, it's interesting. The word for joy is very related in, in the Greek language to the word for grace. They're, they're, they're linked together. This grace has been expressed to us and is experienced most definitively in the gospel itself. Chapter 1, verse 5 and 6. He's talking about how he's heard about their faith in Christ. Verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before, in the word of truth, the gospel, the gospel, verse 6, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it, and understood the grace of God in truth. They've already received God's grace when they believe in the gospel. In the gospel, we find the most explicit definition of God's grace and the most powerful experience of it. In the gospel, we find our sins forgiven. That's God's favor towards us, and it's something we don't deserve. That's God's power at work in us to make us alive when we are dead, power that we don't have. This is God's grace experienced in the gospel. But not only does he wish them grace, he also wishes them peace. Peace is, very simply, the absence of conflict, which brings safety, but even more than that, it's wholeness, it's well-being. Now, why do we need peace? Why do we need some sort of problem fix? It's because we're sinners, and our sin has actually put us, according to the Bible, it describes it as being having enmity against God. Hatred, strife, conflict. All of us, because of our sin, have set ourselves in opposition to God. This means we have a problem. There is a war between us and God. We've rebelled against Him, committed cosmic treason against the holy creator and ruler of the whole universe. And He always wins. That's bad news for us. We need, first and foremost, peace with God. And do you know how we come to find peace with God? To have this conflict resolved? To have our rebellion dealt with? How, where do we find the peace treaty? It's signed with the blood of Christ at the cross. Jesus reconciles us to a holy God. He reconciles us to the Father. We find peace, first and foremost, peace with God through Christ. That is the peace that matters most. In chapter 1, verse 20, or verse 19, he says that in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Verse 20, and through him, through Christ, here's what God has done. Reconcile to himself all things. 
whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He says, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, there's that enmity, doing evil deeds, there's the source of the problem. Verse 22 says that God has now reconciled it's through the death of Christ. Reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death. How do we find grace? How do we experience peace? It's only through Christ. Not only do they have peace with God through Christ, but they also come to experience peace with one another. You know, there's a lot of conflict in the world today, a lot of strife horizontally between husbands and wives, between neighbors, between people of different nations, between people of different social classes, people of different ethnicities. What's the secret to peace on earth? It's only when we're made right with God through Christ that we can be made right with one another. Paul will lay this out for that in chapter 3, verse 11. It says, we read this before, here there's no Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy, beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. He continues on. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. The peace we come to experience with God works itself out horizontally into peace with others. This is what Paul wants for these people. Grace and peace. He wishes them grace and peace specifically, according to verse 2, from the Father. These things come from God. Apart from God, you don't get grace. Apart from God, you can't have peace. But how is grace and peace extended to us? It's given to us through Christ. Through Christ. From God, through Christ. What this means is that grace and peace are already theirs to enjoy. They already have access to this. It is already theirs to rest in, theirs to praise God for. And so it is with us as well. We who know Christ, who have trusted in the gospel, we have grace and peace from God the Father, extended through His Son, applied to our hearts by His Holy Spirit. Grace and peace are things that we possess, that we have by virtue of being in Christ. But it's also something that Paul wants us to understand more deeply, to experience more consistently, to rest in that. And that's why Paul is so adamant in all of his letters, you can't read any of his letters without hearing him attacking wrong ideas. Paul is so adamant to confront error. He's so adamant to confront error. Now, some people think grace and peace means you avoid conflict, right? It means you're nice to everybody and you never, you never disagree. But Paul makes a career out of confronting error. The same one who desires grace and peace to be enjoyed by God's people. Why is that? It's for this reason. If Christ is marginalized, if Christ is, is neglected. If the gospel of Jesus Christ is corrupted or distorted, then get this, we miss the only means of God's grace. And we will fail to obtain the peace with God that we seek. If you miss Christ, grace and peace is forfeit. Grace and peace are the exclusive experience of those who embrace Jesus 
Christ over all, those who embrace and hold to him alone. How different is Paul's approach and Paul's attitude than some today who claim to promote grace. They claim to be trying to achieve peace, but they do it through the minimization of truth. They attempt to accomplish this through tolerating error, saying we're just going to show grace to everyone and be at peace with everyone. To those type of people, grace means putting up with false teaching. To these kinds of people, being at peace means never confronting error, but the grace of God cannot be separated from the truth of God. The gospel is, according to verse 5 of chapter 1, the word of truth. And peace with God and one another is only possible when we're submitted to and united in the truth. The supremacy and sufficiency of Christ is the key. It's the key to experiencing grace and peace. Grace from God. Peace with God. So let me ask you this morning, what place does Jesus Christ have in your thinking? What place does Jesus have in your heart? What place does Christ occupy in your life? Is he supreme? Or is he one of many priorities that you have? Is he sufficient? Is he enough? Or is he one of many sort of resources that you tap into to try to get the help that you need? This is a question we will return to time and time again throughout this letter because it's going to be Paul's repeated so I want to encourage you this morning to make a few New Year's resolutions. And the good news is these are resolutions that have nothing to do with exercise and diet. Okay, So we probably have a better chance of keeping these. But a couple of resolutions I want to exhort you to adopt. Number one, resolve to reject anything that diminishes Christ by subtraction. Resolve to reject anything that diminishes Christ by subtraction. Ask God to help you to give you discernment, to help you see and detect and reject anything that would rob Christ of his glory. There's a million different ways to fall off the wagon. If you hold to the truth who Christ is and never allow him, his person, his work to be minimized, that will keep you on the right track. It's God's will that in all things Christ will be preeminent. First place, supreme over all. So resolve to reject anything that diminishes Christ by trying to take something away from him. Don't let anyone take away from the glory of Christ. The second resolution, I want to encourage you to resolve to reject anything that distorts Christ by addition. Because there's kind of two ways that the enemy tries to mess up the gospel. One is by taking away important truths. That can mess up the gospel. But the other way is just by adding something in. Right? So if somebody's making an omelet, they slip in just a little bit of poison. It doesn't matter that there's eggs and sausage and green peppers and sour cream, spicy salts or whatever else good stuff you're going to put in there. If it's got just a little bit of poison, the whole thing's ruined. Anytime something's added to the gospel, anytime people try to say it's Jesus and, or it's Jesus plus, congratulations, you've just distorted the truth. Let's resolve to reject that. It is Christ alone who is saved. Those who reach for religious ritual, saying that it's trusting in Jesus and getting baptized. It's trusting in Jesus and doing good works and getting to the church. It's trusting in Jesus and being a good person and doing X, Y, and Z. Those people have made a fatal error. Anytime we reach for ritual, or if we reach for secular philosophy, 
or if we reach for some mystical experience to try to fix the problems in our hearts and the problems in the world. If we do that, we're going to be deceived. We're going to be misled. We will fail to obtain the grace of God and experience the peace with God that only comes through the true gospel. It only comes from knowing Christ as He is. There is no Jesus in. There is no Jesus plus. It is always Christ and only Christ. He must be at the center of our faith and at the center of our lives. So reject anything that would distort the truth of Christ by adding something else in. And then finally, I want to encourage you to resolve to reject anything that would detach Christ from the rest of life. Anything that would detach Him by disconnection. A life that is not centered on Christ is a failure to walk in Him. Paul tells us in chapter 2, verse 6, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Our life, all of it, every part, is to be shaped and affected by what we believe about Jesus Christ. You can't compartmentalize what you believe about Jesus. Well, here's what, I, here's what I believe about religious stuff. Here's what I believe about the Bible and salvation. But, you know, my whole approach to my career or to raising children or to making decisions with my finances or how I work through this conflict with my mother-in-law, you know, those things, that's just, that's just real-life stuff. But the gospel of Christ doesn't apply to that, does it? Yes, it does. Resolve to reject anything that would detach Christ from the rest of life. We are called to walk in Him. We are called to seek the things above, chapter 3, verse 1. It would be a tragedy for you and for me to somehow become theologically precise, but to be practically unaffected by Jesus. That can't happen. Paul's going to spend two full chapters talking about doctrine. Then he's going to switch gears in chapter 3 and say, in light of all that's true about Christ, this is how you must live. It affects everything. It affects everything. At least it ought to. If you place Jesus on the sideline, if he only occupies part of your life, if he only has supreme reign over part of your thinking, part of your heart, then you will never experience his transforming power. It's our union with Christ and our, our wholehearted seeking of him that will produce the kind of life, the kind of living, the kind of doing that pleases God. The kind of things we were meant to do. We'll never be the person God created you to be until Christ is infused into every part of your life. Then you will live the kind of life that puts off what is sinful, that puts off, puts on what pleases God, and lives in a way that accords with the gospel. So as we study through Colossians for the next few months, I want to invite you to commit with me to these resolutions. Commit to this with me. We must uphold the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. His gospel must never be minimized. It must never be corrupted. It must never be neglected. It must never be forgotten. Jesus is over all. He is supreme. And Jesus is sufficient. He is enough. He is what we need and all we need. These glorious truths are the antidote to a million different errors that threaten the church today. And for those who believe, those who embrace the truth of Christ, we will experience the ever-deepening joy of knowing His grace and peace. Paul wanted that for them. God wants that for you and for me. Let's seek that together in His work as we continue on in God in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its power. We thank you for its clarity. We thank you, God, for the grace and peace that are extended to us through Jesus Christ. 
And God, I can't help but think that there may be some among us this morning who may know about Jesus, they may know about God, but they have not experienced reconciliation with you. They don't have peace with you. They've not received your grace, the grace that comes to those who repent of sin and embrace Jesus Christ through faith. I pray that you would draw sinners to yourself and save them. Do the miracle that only you can do in their hearts. And God, I pray for those of us who know you, that we would seek you, that we would find you, that we would see you as you are, and that we 